This is Chris Garcia. And Rhonda Solis. And, and we're, we're Latino, Latino Northern Colorado. Colorado. On our last episode, we discussed our stories and what brought us to create this podcast. We also discussed various sub-communities within the Latino community. This month, we're highlighting the creators. And with that, we wanted to start with a new segment we're calling, Did You Know? Much of the feedback we got from our last podcast was that our listeners found it so interesting that Senator Casimiro Varela fought to ensure that the Colorado Constitution was written in English, Spanish, and German. We're taking this a step further and creating a segment specifically for that reason. So, did you know that prior to 1848, under Mexican law, women could inherit and purchase land and livestock, share that ownership with their husbands, and establish their own businesses? When these lands became American territory, the new U.S. laws rescinded many of these rights, transforming the lives of women of the borderlands. Maria Teresita Sandoval, co-founder of El Pueblo, which is now known as Pueblo, is also an LLI inductee. So she's part of our history. And so it was amazing to hear her contributions that far back as a woman, as a Latina, and, you know, working to make sure and pave the way for the rest of us. Amen. Thank you to the Colorado Latino Hall of Fame for really highlighting these stories and making sure that we're sharing them, right? Right. Exactly. Okay, my did you know is a little bit more modern. I don't know if you know this, but there are more Latinos in Evans, Colorado, or at least the percentage population of Latinos in Evans, Colorado is higher than it is in Greeley. In Greeley currently, based on 2010 census numbers, it's around 39%, but the current in Evans, based on 2010 census is 45%. And so our Latino population is bigger. Also just recognizing the fact that Evans is a bedroom community, people come and live here, they feel at home here, and they may work in Greeley. Wow, I didn't know that. Thanks for sharing that. Fill out your census. We also wanted to share the creators, right? Like that's our story this time. And I have a really cool creator specifically from Northern Colorado. Do you know who Mariano Medina is? I do not. Do you know who Mariano Medina is? I don't. Mariano Medina was born in Taos, New Mexico, and his family were the first permanent settlers near the Big Thompson. So he actually helped found Loveland, Colorado. Oh, wow. We don't, nobody tells these stories, no. right? Um, so a little bit about Mariano Medina. He also became the area's first businessman when he established a trading post. He was actually slightly west of Loveland in an area called Namaqua near Devil's Backbone. So that entire area oh. it was founded by Mariano Medina. A little bit more about Mariano is that Medina was a small man of Mexican descent. He was actually like five foot five. That's, so a, good, that, that's a good that's a good height. Yeah, that's that's right where I am, so that works. <laughs> he had jet black hair, which according to news never turned gray as he aged. He had piercing black coal eyes and a swarthy face, and his feet were small and his hands showed the effects of an outdoor life. He was a fur trader, and it's really cool because he actually recruited Mexican families from Taos to come and help him build up the land here in northern Colorado. Wow, that's a good one, Chris. Mariano Medina, for all of you who didn't know. So today what we're going to be talking about is a creator that's really close to me. Our guest for today is Ray Romero. He has been a mentor of mine for probably over 10 years now. We've known each other quite a while, you and Carlos, and continues to be close in my circle. He was born in northern New Mexico in the county of San Miguel, 
and he served on several boards, commissions, committees, and has been a creator of programs in our community to fill gaps where things are missing. I went over your history and it was just, it would take up our whole podcast to actually go over it. So I just picked out a few things. One thing that connects Chris is the Chavez Center at UNC, which we'll talk a little bit more about in our segment uh, a little later on. So let's get started. So welcome, Ray. Thank you, both of you. Thank you so much. So the first question is, what in you told you that this work needed to be done? I mean, at what age did it really hit you that, you know, there is some things that need to change, I need to do some work, and you just start going and, and doing all these different things that you've been a part of? I came to that recognition when I was just a very young boy because I came from the state of New Mexico here to the Denver-Brighton area, and my mother was very strong about working towards our liberty, working for rights of people. So I knew then, just watching my mother, that my passion was going to be doing whatever I could to help people, particularly Latinos and other uh, low-income people. So would you say that the drive for this work comes from your mom and just witnessing her? It absolutely does. She was my mentor and my model. Moms are good for that, aren't we? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's amazing. Ray, I know that this work can be difficult. We all know around this table that this work can be difficult at times. What has kept you going through the adversity of these challenges or potentially coming up against a wall or, you know, having folks not specifically say, yeah, we want to change this. We want to make it more diverse. We want to engage all marginalized communities. What has kept me working on it? As I said, I felt that that passion, that need to make a difference in people's lives since I was young. So I've done it. I went through high school representing kids with the principal and others, uh, the universities, the three universities that I attended. I was involved with Latino organizations and coming here to, to Greeley was even more of a need, I felt. So I stayed highly involved with the school boards, involved, elected twice to the Board of Education here, the university. I took a position as assistant to the president of the university, but I felt that I could do more, again, for Latinos students, for the disenfranchised student, Native Americans, Asian Pacifics, black students, the non-traditional students, older students. So I gave him a plan. I said, I can do these 25 things for you. And that's where I'd like to be. And he said, you know what, let's do it. So was it mostly just like entering that space and saying, I want to take on these challenges and then potentially opening the door for others? Or can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, actually not exactly that way. A lot needed to be done and a lot had not been done. But there was a person, Carlos Leal, who was at that time the chairman of Mexican-American Studies. He started that program and it was a major battle for him. Major, major battle but he got it implemented and he actually initiated the program that I developed, the Center for Human Enrichment. But he was busy with the academic part of things, the Mexican-American studies and so forth. So I came in and I took it over very early on and I built it from two people to 115 people, from maybe $150,000 to millions of dollars that all went to the minority students. 
Well, all and students I, read. And I can tell you one of the most um, pleasurable things I have that I've been able to do is actually sit down with you and Carlos and just hear all the old stories and how they did this work and, you know, who they had to talk to and fight with. And these two together were a pretty tough team. You guys have done a lot together. It was a battle, but you know what? The way I was raised with my mother in Brighton, Colorado, and the Denver area sometimes, we lived there also, it was always a battle for Latinos. So I, I was fine with it. I actually, I actually enjoyed it. I set up challenges for myself, and I knew within myself that I would get it done, irregardless of the opposition. And with the help of God, it happened. So in the work that you did back then and looking at the way things are now, do you see a lot of difference or do you still see those same types of challenges coming up over and over again? Well, the same type of challenges still exist. It has not changed in that sense, but to the degree, they're not as heavy all of the time. But yeah, we're still dealing with the issues of homes, of wages for our people, of students dropping out of school, enough money for them to get to the, through the universities, and on and on. So, yeah, the same problems exist in regards to prejudice, discrimination, exclusiveness. That could even be stronger at this point in time. So I was actually going to share a little bit about that. I was going to ask you, I was born in the 80s. And so, you know, growing up in the late 80s and the early 90s, you didn't really feel as much discrimination. I feel like the country was doing pretty well also. And so maybe like, you know, my parents were doing pretty well or maybe they shielded me from it, right? But now growing up and even during my time at UNC, during my time as a professional, I've seen racism reemerge or, or discrimination reemerge. I guess, have you seen these highs and lows? Oh, absolutely. And right now we're at a major high with the president administration at a national level and, and the politics as they are, you know, too many people being hurt. And yeah, it's amazing, yeah. But let me tell you something else. When a person is young, you don't really, you're not cognizant of the fact that there might be a separative issue for us, that there's discrimination as prejudice. Your, your father and your mother probably felt that, certainly your grandparents did. But once you become cognizant and aware of that, as you are now because you're involved, and involved in the community with Latinos and other issues, you know that it's there. Well, I always use that story of, you know, when I was younger and I would go to the store and I would be followed around by the clerk, I just thought that was normal. Like, I just thought that happened to everyone. And it wasn't until I was older, it was like, oh, that didn't happen to everyone. And that was so wrong. It shouldn't happen to anyone. <laughs> right. But I think it does. It I think that yeah. falls under what you're talking about. When you're younger, yeah. you just have like no idea. Yeah. And then once you get older and you really have a wider view, it's like that was not supposed to happen at all. And the fact that it did and that I didn't even notice or didn't even at the time feel it. But now I can totally recognize it. You're aware. And that's why both of you stay so involved, because, you know, there are issues that you want to alleviate so for other people. Of your long list of things, what has been, would you say, the most challenging that you've done? Oh, that's really a tough one because I've always taken on positions. I have never accepted a job for money, for the title, nothing like that. It was always my purpose. If I had a purpose that I could make a difference in people's lives, obviously I, I did okay. I made money. I'm not saying I did it free. I didn't. 
I did okay with the jobs that I was accepted to do. Honestly, all of the positions that I have had have always been advocating for people. It's sometimes black, sometimes Latinos, sometimes the aged, sometimes the poor. I don't know, I guess I have to say that one thing I, I was so happy that I had the opportunity to do was work at the University of Northern Colorado where I, I felt that I had an, an impact on Latino students and black, uh, all minority, all disenfranchised students. Well, this is a really great segue because I have the next question and I wanted to share a little bit of context about me. In going to UNC, the first person I connected with was Trish at the Chavez Center. And the reason why was because my educational talent search counselor, Lydia Nava, was Van Lu at the time, was married to Scott Van Lu, who was one of the directors at the Chavez Center. And she said, if you don't know where you're going, just go there and they will help you, right? And so I arrived, Trish says, mijo, buenas tardes, como estas? You know, like yeah. I felt like I was at home oh, yeah. and immediately she said, okay, you're first gen, let's get you connected to the Center for Human Enrichment and connected me to Julie there. And Julie said, you wanna be a teacher, let's get you connected to Cumbres because that's for bilingual education or ESL teachers. And you know, it was just this like internal network of folks that were all kind of fighting for you and just knowing that you, Carlos, Roberto, Maria, all had this opportunity to create these things and they've had an impact on thousands of students at this point, thousands of students, not just Latino students, but students in general at UNC. What inspired you all to really build these spaces for all of us so that we had that access, so we have that opportunity and what has, I guess, been your proudest moment in seeing these continue to evolve? Well, I, I can tell you there's been so many proudest moments for me working at the university. I was there 25 years and I had the right type of, of friendships. Uh, all the Latinos, of course, and, and certainly I had to work diligently with the president, the vice president, the deans and others. I was an assistant dean actually uh, because they gave me that academic title because of the program, the Center for Human Enrichment, and, and we sponsored classes, as you probably know. Proud moments there, and I certainly didn't do all of this by myself because there were always these other people that I shared with you. Carlos Leal was a major person in, in his own way, pushing for me, uh, Tony Carvajal, uh, Roberto Cordova, uh, Maria Lopez is also named in here. Yeah, Maria Lopez was really, honestly, on the other side. Oh, wow. There was never support. It was always a battle with her. Uh, she was with the deans of arts and sciences, which opposed pretty much everything we do, because they're the ones that gave the thousands of Latinos and blacks and Asians that we have your students. They were never university students. Mm. There was always your students, Ray, even in major battles for space or whatever, because it was always a battle. It was your students. It was finally at a, at a we were battling to get the lower floor of the library, because I brought the second, but the largest technology lab to the university. I wrote a proposal to Apple. They funded me and I went to University of Arizona and brought a Mexican PhD. Both he and his wife had PhDs in technology and brought him here many, many times. And uh, 
Well, I got to use that lab, so thank you? you so much. <laughs> good, good. And you just mentioned that you went through Cumbres. Mm -hmm. Me and my wife, Bella, and Press Montoya started that program. Bella wrote all the curriculum. Wow. And then we hired Dr. Andrade, Ernie Andrade, to come as the first director. And so that was Cumbres. Uh, a big moment for me at, at CHE, they were all big moments because, as I said, we grew from two or three people to 115, from $150,000 to millions of dollars. And the space, we ended up getting that library, which is a major battle. I had to bring lawyers in twice during the years that I was there. Uh, you know, quietly and such. I, I didn't, but I, I had to fight the status quo in terms of minorities getting the opportunities that we need to have, the students need to have. I brought the McNair Scholars Program. That was a major piece, yes. Graduate programs for kids of color. Yes, yes, we, 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 they came in as undergraduates. We trained them, taught them how to write, how to present, how to research. We took them all throughout the nation, We 40 a year. We'd taken a Penn State University to Berkeley, you name it, we took them, it was free. And we got them a mentor, a professor in their major to ensure that we put them out there because they were not being accepted at that time by the honors program. That's so why I said, well, I'm gonna start our own program, Center for Human Enrichment program because we need students of color in the honors program. So that's a, that got started and it's still going today as Cumbres is going today. As Gear Up, are you familiar with Gear yes, Up in the yes. schools? Mm -hmm. I brought that. I wrote that wow. proposal and I put it in the schools. In fact, you mentioned, uh, I'm sorry, you mentioned somebody that helped you. Lydia Nava. Lydia. With Educational Talent Search. L Lydia, she was married to. Scott. Yes. Yeah. Lydia worked for me. Scott worked for me. Oh. Yes. And so, and the, and the Chavez, I was involved in hiring uh, the director there now. Wonderful, extraordinary person, really caring. And uh, so that center started, and that was a battle, believe me. The, the only center that existed at the UNC campus was Marcus Garvey, and they were very small. So when I came, I invited them to come in to where I was at, Candelaria Hall, across the hall, and I provided everything they needed, including money and staff. That's amazing. But it was already there. Wow. Well, and hearing these stories, I mean, I when I graduated from high school, I was too afraid to go to college, oh, so I didn't even try. But it's so interesting to hear these names because all those names are the same people when I decided to put my name in the hat for a school board. I mean, there was this close circle of men. It was you and Ernie and Carlos and Press that always met on a weekly basis and I would come crash your coffee and talk to you about me running and you guys would help me and kind of talk to me about issues and things that I would need to work on and stuff like that. And so, I, and I felt privileged because I was the only female there you know, crashing this all-male party, but you guys have been doing these, you know, this amazing work for years, and it's not only on the campus, but you continue to do it out into the community, and I've benefited from that, so, you know, I feel like this, this huge connection from you guys, and, you know, talking to Chris and hearing all his stories on campus, and then mine, and it's like we're so different generationally, but yet we've been connected by the same people, so the work you guys have done has just been amazing and continue to do. I mean, you're still working and, and still fighting for people and that's that's a huge thing to devote your life to doing. 
And I'll just share this really quick that the story isn't told enough on campus of who actually started these programs. Yeah. They're just extraordinary programs that so many students benefit from, but we don't hear that challenge. We don't hear that battle. We don't hear who, who created, right? These creators, mm -hmm. we don't hear about that. All we see really is this is an extraordinary program that I have the chance to benefit from and I've had the privilege of benefiting from. Yeah, those programs still exist and, and many others. I, I just mentioned a few, but you know, you, we identified you early on. We met you at Fort Collins. Polly Baccabaragan was having some kind of a political meeting at University. Oh, that Carlos is where I University. met you guys. I forgot. And Carlos and I said, we got to get her. <laughs> let's, let's get her involved because she was sharp, bright, articulate, and had the enthusiasm. So yeah, that's why we said, yeah, whatever oh we can do, I agree. we're gonna do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Before we go on really quick, I just wanted to share one of my proudest moments on campus, and it has to do with the Chavez Center, mm -hmm. is that I was on the diversity council that was created between all of the cultural yeah, centers. Yeah. It was students from each one of the cultural centers. And it was 2005 at the time. None of the centers actually had their names outside of them. It just said the Patton House or the Cole House. It didn't really say the Marcus Garvey Cultural Center. Yeah, it didn't say Asian right. Pacific American Student Services. It didn't say the Cesar Chavez Cultural Very Center true. or Native American Student Services. And so we fought the administration and we fought for an entire year pretty much. And we started fighting in October and not until April of the following year did they actually put the names back outside of the centers. And we were so proud of that. And so we went to each of the centers and we actually had a mini party at each one of the centers highlighting those names. And so again, thank you for being a part of that. And I just wanted to share that piece because it was so powerful for us that we were able to get as students, the names put back on the centers. And, and that's wonderful because we need Cesar Chavez out there. We need Marcus Garvey and all that. We need it. And let me tell you, we had battles for years about that. I mentioned to you that there were several times that I had to bring lawyers on campus to represent me and the issues. That was one of them. But I don't recall who was president then and vice president <laughs> and deans. So they said, no, 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 it's the Patton House. Not, it was that. Yes, the Cesar the Chavez. Yep. Yeah, you know, they didn't want to give us visibility and credit, right? And you know, the craziest thing is, okay, if it was a donated house, I understand that, they purchased that house. So it's not even a donated house, which is like, oh. why would you name it that then? Oh, the university purchased yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, they, they just didn't want the power of the minority people involved. And, but, and we've had really good people throughout that too, but we've had some very strong people as we have today in the political arena that were just not going to buy it and they had the the power to make block those decisions it, to block yeah. it yeah but so yeah we tried there's there's so many stories and we're obviously not going to cover them in just one podcast so do you and carlos talk about writing a book or anything about your experiences and your years here and making sure that those stories are told and shared no we haven't done that we talk a lot about it and joke with each other but i i i'm just about 95 percent through writing my autobiography oh, okay and uh so i mentioned i i don't get into the specifics like i really have stayed away what i did on my jobs and i really should have done that because they were all helping people of color and and low-income minorities all over the united states i think i've mentioned to both of you i 
did consulting work in 42 states, and they were always the wow. low-income, poor minorities. If it was New York, it was the low-income. If it was Boston, low-income. If it was Los Angeles, it was the migrants. You might did training with migrants there. Just, it was all that kind of work. That's where I, I pointed myself to. I just think you two would have a blast writing a book together <laughs> and telling yeah, stories. To <laughs> I'm planting the seed now. <laughs> And, and I want something in there about you me. You get like the first edition <laughs> know, because right? of that. <laughs> so as new generations come into these experiences, just like what you're talking about, what you've had to, to witness and experience, what is your advice as they take on this charge? What is your advice to young people? What is, what is your advice to Chris and I? Well, my advice to young people is lead with your heart. Use your head. Do things right. But don't be influenced by people who say, hey, that's bad, that's too political, you can't do that, it's going to give you a bad name. If your heart tells you this is right, people need this, then you have to create the opportunity to help others, irregardless of the power that be. It doesn't matter. You just approach it and approach it smart and stay with it, and you will be a winner. That's good advice. I like that. It's really good advice. <laughs> well... This is our last question. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us that you have not yet discussed? Oh, I will share one thing because Rhonda mentioned several times I was the only woman, I was the only woman. I want you to know one thing. When I came to Center for Human Enrichment as assistant dean and director, I created directors there because I looked at the university as I did when I was a federal government. The federal government where I, I was in charge of six states for the Social Security Administration, they had absolutely extremely few Latinos in, in good positions, no women and no Native Americans. So I went to Washington, D.C. and got special permission because they wouldn't let me here, the Civil Service Commission, to go out in the region to bring in a team and identify people. And I hired 22 Native Americans, at least that many women, handicapped, many Latinos. I'm just so going to clap. I know, right? Because like, I'm like mind blown. And <laughs> Let me say one, one, one more word. If, if you have to cut this out, that's okay for, for Rhonda. When I came to the Center for Human Rights, there were also very few women. You didn't see the deans and even very few professors. When I came there in 1974, okay, so you can see. And in my department, when I became the assistant dean, and, and director, I every director that I put in charge of about seven components, you know, academic advising, tutorial services, reading, the technology lab, and all the others were women and women of color. I had Latinas, I had whites, I had a blacks, I had an Asian Pacific, and a Native American working for me. Was one of those women Stephanie Torres? Yes. Because she is yes, Stephanie. one of my biggest mentors. I, I promised Stephanie, when I leave, you're going to take over my position, the director. And she did, and today she's an assistant vice president. Wow. Yeah, I mentored her for years. She's mind-blowingly amazing. Yeah, she's a wonderful lady. Were, all of those people were absolutely wonderful. 
just supportive of students, all students. Well, and it's amazing how many people are overlooked, and it really does take someone to be conscious yeah. and intentional in changing things. And that's one of the things that I've talked about a lot this year is, you know, if you really want to make a difference, it really has to be that you are conscious where the gaps are and that you're intentional on filling that. Yeah. Because if you don't, then you end up doing one small thing, thing yeah. and checking a box over and, and thinking that again, you're yeah. done. And that's what I see a lot in communities, especially when it comes to outreach to people of color. Yeah. They like will have one celebration and they check off yeah. their list like it's it's all we done. We're thing. good. Or one Latino, right? Yes. Oh, there's, oh, yeah. there's one oh, Latino. Yeah. We oh, have yeah. the Latino voice. Okay, we did it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it really does take someone like you, Ray, that yeah. is very conscious of that yeah. and intentional in that work. You just have to be persistent, and and actually, you're not. You can't worry about yourself. You know, you want to stay clean, you want to be strong, you want to be credible, you want to be respected, you want to have the power. That's why I went after money, because I know money talks at a university. So they gave me $150,000, so I told you to run it. What are you going to do with $150,000 <laughs> when you're going to send people out to recruit Latinos, you're going to be training, you're going to bring a technology lab for minority students, but everybody uses that, of course. So I went out for money because that was my job before as a consultant. I wrote proposals, went to Washington DC and got them funded. So I did it here and they were amazed. So I know your mom was your inspiration, but when you're talking about the work that you're doing, you have to be, I mean, you have to have a plan in place and, and a way that you go about it. What is that for you and where did you get that? I mean, when you have an idea and you just go with it, there's like things that you have to put in place to get there. What is that process for you and, and where did you get that from? Where did I get it from? Really, honestly, it started when I was a very young kid. First with my family, my mother, my older brother Juanito, my brother Doroteo, my oldest or older brothers Manuel, and they just taught me, I watched them. I was the younger kid on the block with them, but I watched what they were doing. They were always organized and, and well-planned. And then I, I started getting involved as a very young, as I told you, I, I created a, a car club called the Diablo Customs. Wow. I still have the jacket that we had tailor-made in Denver with. Why aren't you wearing it I know, today? Because right? <laughs> I got too heavy. <laughs> that was high school. <laughs> With the Denver to a tailor and had him made the big devil that Johnny Morales, he was an artist. <laughs> also, my buddy drew a devil shooting fire, Diablo Customs, Brighton. And then we made the metal uh, plaques that you hang on your bumpers. And we all had customized cars. Mine was a 1950 Mercury. We had every car. We put money in it. No door <laughs> handles, nothing. All lettered in, low to the ground, chrome rims. <laughs> The gear on the left side, <laughs> hot engines, yeah. Amazing. So, so organizing like that, you know, and quote-unquote, leading. Let me say something about that. There's very few people understand that you have to be a leader. See, most bosses that I've had start out with me wanting to manage me. You don't manage people. You manage inventory on shelves and such, you lead people. Right. And I understood that, so I was able to deal effectively with people, and, and I liked creating, and I liked making a difference. Back then, it was in the Latino community. I was elected to the board in Adams County School Board twice, very young. Oh, wow. Ever twice, and we won. Hold on. Oh, so I want to thank you, Ray, 
for your insight, your time, and for inspiring us and countless others to build and support our community. I feel like we could just hang out with you all day and just have these conversations. We I might, want to. We might have to do that. Get you, Carlos, and us together and, and have these conversations. It's so good. that would be amazing. Coffee but, or whatever. There you go. Or tequila. We have lots of tequila. I have a ton of tequila. So... <laughs> So, yeah, I just want to make sure and thank you, you know, and honor you for the work that you've done. And you really have open doors, and we see that. And, um, you know, I, I just want to make sure that you know that we are very grateful and, and we honor your, your work. Well, I appreciate it. It's really been my pleasure. That's, that's what I want to do in my life. That's my sole purpose, honestly. Well, thank you for being here also yeah, with yeah, us yeah. and sharing these your stories. Your first podcast. This is your first podcast. Yeah. You're digital now. Yeah. <laughs> What's a podcast? <laughs> uh, so on a serious note, as our community becomes more diverse and we see tragedies like those that have happened in Texas, Iowa, and Mississippi recently, and even our own raid that we had here in 2006 and still see the ripple effects of that in a community, uh, on our next podcast, we'll take on this topic directly. We understand that even us as adults, it can be difficult to engage with one another, right? Like across these systems, but it's important for us to discuss how to maneuver these conversations, especially as we take on these challenges in our community, especially as we take on challenges with our children, with students in our school district, with young people in the colleges and universities. Do you have any thoughts around that? No, I can say that I, I am so pleased that you two are saying what you're saying, and I know that you mean it because I've watched you do work. And uh, that's an absolute necessity. That is the greatest thing that you can do to impact other people's lives, particularly our youth. We must do that. Anytime we get a chance to mentor somebody, we have to jump on it, we, gotta, we show direction, we open doors, do whatever we can. So that's great, you guys have the right idea, you have the right goal. Get it done. Well, thank you again so much for being here. We, I, I've had a ton of fun. I'm not yeah, gonna speak too. for Rhonda. <laughs> I <always laughs> but I feel like fun. we've been laughing this entire time, <laughs> which is amazing and just like inspired by all of this history and all of these stories. As we shared a little bit earlier, we're gonna take on this topic of conversations of working across difference. And our next episode will actually air at the end of September. But until then, we hope that you keep these conversations going, listeners. Right. All right. And we will talk to you again soon, Ray. Great. Thank you. And thanks for doing this. This is wonderful for our community. Wonderful. Well, we agree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I say for our community. Yeah. yeah. But no, you guys are doing a great job. This is very, very important. And we did come up with an idea of, you know, every other episode, we will actually have a, a guest come in and, and have a conversation with us. So we look forward to that. And hopefully we'll actually even get Carlos in yeah. on one of our, our podcasts. That would be great. He has a lot to say. Well, thanks, everybody. This has been a great podcast. We look forward to our next one in, in September. Yeah. And until then, definitely keep the conversations going. See you soon. Bye. Good job.